Um, we, are, we have three weeks left for the semester here at RUF. Uh, tonight is uh, the last night that we're going to be talking about redemption. Okay, and for the, as you may or may not know, the whole semester we've been talking about the story of Scripture, that it is one unified story, a love story about God, uh, who the Bible talks in some sense as a king and his people. And uh, through the fall, that relationship was severed, but through uh, this man, Jesus Christ, the Bible says that that relationship is brought back into harmony. And for the last two weeks, we've talked about, we've been asking the question, well, how does Jesus do that? How does Jesus redeem us exactly? And we said that he redeemed us by the way that he lived, being a perfect man, right? And he, and he also redeemed us, we talked about last week, by his death on a cross. And what that means is that he took our sin on himself on the cross. And that by virtue of this thing that theologians call uh, this substitution, a substitutionary atonement, we get his righteousness, his whole record of good living, and he got our sin. And that's why he had to die. And that's why on the cross he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because that's what our sin deserves from God. But Jesus did that for us, if, you, if your faith is in him. But tonight we're talking about the third aspect of our redemption, right? So it's the life, death, and tonight we're talking about the resurrection of Jesus. What about the resurrection actually saves us? Was it just something cool that happened? Or like, ooh, Jesus came out of the tomb, that's pretty neat. Um, or was there something actually effectual happening in there? Did that... Was it the cause, was it the effect of something that was happening on a grand scale? Paul, as we'll read here in just a minute, um, he argues for the latter, as you might have guessed. But let's look down and we'll read what Paul talks about in uh, this letter to a church in Corinth, which was a city which was right around kind of the northeast Mediterranean Sea back in the, um, in the early, you know, uh, first, second, third centuries, and even before that. But that's, um, that's where Corinth was. So let's look down and read uh, 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 1. There's a lot of verses, but they're pretty short. So that's, uh, that's good news. Here we go. Uh, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me, for I am the least of all the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how come some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. 
If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we of all people are most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by came a man death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so as in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then in his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Let's pray quickly before we consider this. Lord God, we pray that you would come through the teaching of your word and that you would afflict the comfortable and you would comfort the afflicted. We pray that your gospel would be sweet and that we would see Jesus perhaps in a new way or perhaps for the first time. Would you come by your spirit and open our eyes and our hearts to do that? We need you. We depend on you. We pray that you would. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the past... I don't know, five or so years, uh, really for the whole time we've been married, I've gotten to know a lot about houses, about building houses, about how houses are built, about how they function, what's behind the walls, how plumbing works, electrical works, all this stuff. It's been through experience, stuff we've done in our own house and through an addition we did and all of these things. And it's kind of annoying, I'll be honest with you, because I'll drive down the road now and I'll see a house that's being built. It's like, oh, I know exactly what they're doing and I'll just do this as I'm driving by and um, know exactly what stage they are in the framing and all of that. Well, one thing I did notice and I have learned is that, as you might imagine, the structure and the foundation and the framing to a house is vital. Right? That how well that stuff is put together and how well um, it's secured to the foundation is of utmost importance in a house. To the point that if those things are not intact, if, those, if the house is not framed well, if it's not secured well to the foundation, then the house essentially is worthless. It's, it has no value because the first time a big storm comes or something like that, there's nothing holding it together. There's nothing mooring it down. You know, and as the Apostle Paul thinks about the resurrection, he's essentially saying the same thing. He says, look, If the resurrection isn't true, if the resurrection doesn't happen, then Christianity is worthless. It is of no value. It makes no sense. We are all stupid. We need to get a different hobby and something else to do on Tuesday nights and Sunday mornings. He's saying it just doesn't work if the resurrection doesn't happen. So to Paul, it's of utmost essential value. It is Christianity. Without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. But friends, we hardly ever talk about the resurrection, except on Easter Sunday we celebrate it, but we don't really know how to think about it. So that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to think about what actually happens in the resurrection. And we're going to see three things. The first thing I want us to see is that the resurrection is factual. We're going to talk about the fact of the resurrection. Second, we're going to talk about the faith of the resurrection, not in the resurrection, the faith of the resurrection. And thirdly, the future hope of the resurrection. Okay, tonight, the fact of the resurrection Look at verses 3 through 5. We're not going to read them again, but just glance down at them. Paul says that this issue of resurrection of Jesus is of utmost, of first importance if this whole thing called Christianity, if everything that this church in Corinth was to believe is true, the resurrection is of first importance. It's everything. 
that Christ died, was buried, and was resurrected, and that he appeared to all these people. Now, Paul realizes that he has to establish it as a historical fact before it can be believed. He's not looking at this church in Corinth or writing them, as it were, saying, look, I'm just going to kind of ask you to take it on faith, to just believe me that Jesus was raised from the dead. No. What Paul does, he's saying it happened. In his, in his day, he told them that there were 500 people who they could come and talk to and, and ask them about Jesus. Because it says that Jesus was resurrected. And then he appeared to all these people and then to these 500 people. And then to Cephas, who's Peter, and then to James and the other apostles. He lists this name, all these names. He said some of them have died, but most of them haven't. And look, the, the, the book of 1 Corinthians, the letter was written somewhere in the 40s to 50s, okay? So think about this. Jesus died somewhere around 30 A.D., okay? Somewhere around 30 A.D., Jesus died. Just 10 years later, Paul saying, look, there's about 500 people walking around in my town right now who you could come ask because they saw Jesus. He's saying, come and do it. It's a fact. It happened. Come to Jerusalem. Ask James, who he lists there. James was the pastor of the huge Christian church that was in Jerusalem at that time. He's saying, come ask him. He saw him. Jesus appeared to him. Touched him. Okay. Christianity, a lot of people think that Christianity is simply unbelievable because of this thing called the resurrection. Because it's miraculous. These kind of things don't just happen all the time. Some people say they don't happen ever because they defy scientific reasoning and rationality and all these things. But there are a few things that we have to account for if that's the case. The first one is this. Why did the disciples, who right after Jesus was, was killed on the cross, why did, they went into hiding. Right? They were afraid for their lives. Why did they then come out after the resurrection and they said, oh my gosh, we've got to start telling people. If Jesus wasn't raised and if He didn't appear to people, the disciples would have still been hiding because people would have wanted to kill them. But Jesus was raised, and they said, we can't stay in here. He's raised our Savior, the guy who died. We've got to go tell people. And that's the history of the Christian church. How does the Christian church spread in the first century and beyond as it has through 2,000 years if, Jesus did, if He was not resurrected from the dead? You've got to account for that because it took over. Even in, that, in those areas, in, that, in those lands in the first century, Christianity took over like wildfire because there was this man who was, dead, who was dead who then was raised. So what do you do with that? What do you do with that if you're skeptical of the resurrection? You see, there were, uh, there were lots of other people who claimed to be the Messiah. A guy named Judas Maccabees, about 200 years before Jesus, walked around saying he was the Messiah. And guess what? He died. And it was over. <laughs> it was done. His followers all fled because their leader was dead. And it game over. Game changer, right? Uh, not so with Jesus. It didn't work with Christianity. People probably would have hoped it would have gone that way, that another crazy is now dead. Let's get this thing behind us. Oh, shoot, then he comes from the dead. <laughs> this is going to be a problem. And it was. And it was because Jesus was resurrected. So if you're skeptical of the resurrection, or maybe you have friends who are, if you're like, yeah, I believe it, why are you saying this? Think about as you engage with people who may not believe in this. Think about this. Is your skepticism well-founded? Okay? Is your skepticism well-founded? Because 
Um, there are other questions you have to ask, and one is this. Would you be willing to talk about why you don't believe it? Would you be willing to talk about that? Because here's the deal. If there were 500 people who Paul said you'd go and talk to back then. Now, obviously, those people aren't still alive today. But Paul, he would have been stupid to say that if he didn't mean it. So there were 500 people who saw it. It was a fact. But what would it take for you to say something is a fact? What would it take for you to say something is a fact? Would you have to see it firsthand yourself? Say, so, oh, if I, if I was back then, if, if I could see Jesus appear to me right now, if I could see God come out of the clouds or right in the heavens or do something right now, I would believe and I would be a Christian. Well, that's convenient on things like religion, but I just want us to realize that we don't do that in history. You believe history across the board, which are simply things you didn't see. Did you witness the Holocaust? No, but you believe it. Did you witness uh, everything that's happened in the last, I don't know, when were you born? Since 1990? Everything up to 1990. Did you see it firsthand? No. But you believe it because it's history. Okay, so then it becomes, do I believe in the Bible? Well, quick fact. Okay? Uh, there was a guy named Josephus who was a historian in the first century. He wrote this, uh, he was a Jewish guy, but he wrote history. Now, he has this great uh, kind of book called The History of the Jewish Wars. Everyone, everyone considers it to be valid history. Ten copies of this book were found from the first century. Ten copies. In the same period, there were 5,000 copies of Scripture that were found. 5,000. Why, why do we all of a sudden dismiss it? Because it makes claims uh, about the way that history was. There's just a few things to think about as you kind of ponder the issue of the resurrection, what it takes for me to believe that something's a fact. Okay? But the fact of the resurrection is not just a cognitive assertion by Paul. It's not just some cognitive assent that he makes. And he's like, just if you believe the fact, then you'll be fine. No, because see, for Paul, it was personal. Include a personal response. Look at verse 10. As he's talking about this, and he says, uh, uh, But the, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. What is it that changed Paul? It was the grace of God that came to him. You see, Paul, as he kind of explains there in that passage, he knew that he was a big sinner. He had done some things which he wasn't proud of. I don't know, including killing Christians. He looks and he says, I was a persecutor of the church of God. I killed you guys. I did. I killed people like you. I'm not happy about it, but I did it. And my life was changed when Jesus appeared to me too. You see, it gets personal for Paul because Jesus appeared to him. And it changed everything. So Paul here is writing to this church who in many ways was a messed up church. Paul was a messed up person. He's writing to a messed up church. If you want to know how messed up, look at the beginning of the, of the book of 1 Corinthians and look at the, thing that, the things that he says are going on in the church. I don't know, incest, uh, orgies, drunkenness. And then he throws in things like disobedience to parents, which is always fun. Um, but he, this church was a mess, and he's writing them saying, like, look, I was in the same place as you. I thought this thing was, this, all this stuff was crazy. But, but then I saw Jesus, and I can't do that anymore. And he called me to follow him, and everything's different. He says in verse 8 that it, it was so weird that he was such an un, undeserving recipient of this grace 
that he's, he's listing this list of people, and he says, and then Christ appeared to me as one untimely born. He was like, I don't know. It was weird. I didn't deserve it. I, I was out of character of all these other people who was appearing to, but he did. And he said, I must change now. I can't keep living the same way. The fact of the resurrection changes me, is what Paul's saying. Okay, let's think about this this way. I used to have a Dell computer. God rest its merry little computing soul. Um, and I had it for about three or four years, and at times it would give me problems, and so I'd call the 800 number that I was given, and it was just hard to deal with because I would sit on hold forever, and I'd talk to people who um, we had trouble talking to each other, um, language barriers and such, and it was just, and I, and it was just frustrating, right? Some of y'all have had experience. Sitting on hold over computer issues, top three things that, that make me sin even more. Um, but then I got an Apple, okay? And now I'm not here to talk about Apple righteousness and how if uh, only, val- only Apple member or people who own Apples are valuable members of society, although I think it helps. Uh, I'm just here to tell you my experience of what happened. That I took, we've had, we had several things from Apple now, and over the years, probably the last three or four years since we've had this stuff, um, I've gone and they've repaired stuff that they shouldn't have repaired for free. Now, I'm not even talking about the stuff that's covered under Apple Care and under all the work. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the over-the-top stuff, probably $2,000 of stuff that they just looked and was like, uh, we won't charge you for this. I'm like, well, that's amazing because that's like two months' paycheck for me. Um, all of this stuff has just been given to us. It's grace that has been showed to us by the people at the Apple Store. <laughs> Look, and their grace toward me is not in vain. Because you want to know what I talk about when I tell people about computer stuff? Go buy a Mac. It's like, I know they're more expensive on the front, but we've had $2,000 of free stuff given to us. I'm just telling you my story. That's what happened. Apple's grace to me is not in vain. And that's exactly what Paul is doing with the message he's received. He's looking and saying, Jesus, your grace to me is not in vain. I'm going to tell people about it because it's changed me. Just like it changed me at the Apple Store, right? (laughs) A little differently, I hope. But here's a question for the Christians in the room. If God has been gracious to you, could you look in a mirror with all integrity and look at God and say, your grace to me has not been in vain. Have you been a good steward of what has happened to you through the grace of Jesus? Has your life been changed? Do you think differently? Do you act differently? Does it affect the way you treat others on this campus or in your family? Or has God's grace to you been in vain? That yes, you know you're saved, but it really just doesn't change that much in your daily life. It's a pretty sobering thought when Paul just kind of throws that little half-sentence in there. Because for most of us, our religion, what we call our faith, is just kind of an add-on. It's just kind of something convenient that can get us out of certain troubles um, or something we can make ourselves feel better than others over. But it's a serious question. Are you a little sinner who needs a little help, and therefore a little savior? Or are you like Paul, a big sinner, who, whose failed attempts at life have them in a big mess, and who need a lot of help, and therefore you need a great savior, a big savior. You need, you need grace to be shown to you. 
And I would suggest that to the degree that you see yourself in that latter camp as, as a great sinner who needs a great Savior, to that degree, God's grace to you won't be in vain. And you will want to tell others, and you will want to live differently, and you will want to seek justice in this world, and to begin to live out the life that God has called you to because of what has been done through the gospel. But if you're just a little sinner who needs a little Savior, then you will probably just need a little bit of help from Jesus. And you'll most likely be a lot frustrated with Him. A lot of times. But not only is Paul showing us how important the fact of the resurrection is, he shows us how important the faith of the resurrection is. Okay, so you have the fact of the resurrection and the faith of the resurrection. Notice how I'm not saying faith in the resurrection because it's not something Paul's saying you just take on faith. He's saying it's a fact that happened. But what I'm saying is, what does the resurrection do to the Christian faith? How does it impact, what are the implications of it for the Christian faith, okay? This is exactly what Paul's talking about in verses 12 through 19. And I'm not going to read all of them, but I want to look at verse 17. And so look down and read it with me. It says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Paul is saying that as if the resurrection did not happen, then your faith is futile, which also means empty, empty, or worthless, or foolish. He's looking right at this church and writing and saying, look, if Jesus wasn't raised, find something better to do. Because what you're doing right now is foolish. It's stupid. It's empty, he says. If Jesus hasn't been resurrected, and the whole church thing that we're here to do is worthless. Go and play golf on Sunday mornings. Go do something else. But don't spend your time trying to make life work with these other people who God has supposedly called you to if Jesus is not resurrected. And that comes right at us because, look, if Jesus hasn't been resurrected, then don't even, don't walk around thinking this is true and acting like we need to do this or sing songs to God in praise or anything. But if Jesus is resurrected, then it absolutely means that we need to do this. That we need to get together and talk and fellowship with other believers. And we need to challenge our unbelieving friends about what they believe. Why? Why is it futile if, you, if Christ is not raised? Because as he goes on to say, you are still in your sins. You see, death was the curse that was wrought in the garden through Adam and Eve's disobedience. God said, if you eat of this tree, you shall surely die. Remember, you shall die, die. Surely die. Physical, spiritual death. Complete death. And friends, if death ultimately wins, then what Jesus came to do in conquering sin was ultimately a mission failure. If death wins and if Jesus is not raised, His whole life and ministry mission, the Bible is a joke, it's a failure, it doesn't work. And neither will we. Our lives will be a joke, they'll be a failure, they will not work, this is all you have. And so as Paul would say elsewhere, drink, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you will die. And so go party your brains out. Go sleep with as many people as you can. Go live for the moment. Because, friends, this is all there is if the resurrection is not true. So go do it if the resurrection is not true. But if it's a fact, it's true, then your faith changes. It has to. He says in verses 18 and 19, If it's not true, then those who have also fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if, this, if in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we of all people are most to be pitied. 
He says, if our only hope pertains to this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. People ought to feel sorry for us that we're doing this game that we call Christianity. That we're withholding pleasure from ourselves for now because we're, we're hoping in something better. We're living for future rewards and not just for the here and now. We're laying up our treasure in heaven where neither thief nor rust destroy or moth or whatever. That's what we do as Christians because we don't believe this is all there is. Friends, Jesus is raised from the dead, however, as Paul has already established. And therefore, we are not left in our sins. He finishes the act of redemption that He came on earth to accomplish. He lived. He died. He was resurrected. And then He ascended to the right hand of God where He had always been. But there's more. Because when Paul writes to an early church in Rome, the book of Romans, he says this in chapter 8, verse 11. He says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to you and to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who now dwells in you. He's saying this, if you are a Christian, the moment that you accept Jesus and you begin trusting in this story of His redemption for you as a sinner, the moment that happens, the very same Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead is now in you. And it begins to raise what is dead inside of you to new life. And so this means something very great for us. This is good news. This is gospel for us. Because it means that you can change. It means that you can be different. And it means that the things you struggle with today won't necessarily be the things you struggle with tomorrow or the next day or even after that. Because the Spirit of God who is life-giving is in you creating, working life in your soul. And it starts now. We don't have to wait for our resurrection bodies, as we'll talk about in a minute. That that spirit is at work in us now. Several years ago, um, I got really into road biking. And when I get into something, I really get into it. And I go by everything really nicely. <laughs> so I got this really nice bike, and I got all these really goofy-looking clothes, but they're really nice, and they're really tight, and it was really weird. But um, <laughs> anyway, I got really into riding bikes uh, until I moved to Nashville and realized that riding bikes on hills is a lot different than riding bikes in the flat in Oklahoma. So I sold it. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, when I was really into this stage, I was watching the Tour de France that summer. And it was the time when Lance Armstrong, he was dominant. He was destroying everybody. I mean, it wasn't even close. And I learned a lot as I was kind of watching these because they'd have the commentaries going alongside. And I learned that, that bike racing is a lot more about the team thing. So his USPS, his United States Postal Service team, was a team that he assembled to essentially help him win. And they would come alongside him at different stages and, and, um, and help him through these stages by providing the, the aerodynamic. They, they'd be the person who cut the wind so he could follow him and save more energy and all these things. It was crazy, because I was, as I was watching these things, it showed the kind of training that Lance Armstrong got to go through, and the kind of technology that he had at his disposal, because he was the best, and companies wanted to sponsor him. And so it would show these ridiculous wind tunnels and stuff that they would have, and they'd have the air colored in different colors so they could see the drafts and all this kind of stuff. And friends, if they would find anything on your body or on your bike or whatever that had any sort of drag to it, they would send your whole bike to be remade and re-engineered so that it was super efficient, all these things. And so Lance would ask these different riders to come and be a part of his team. 
And when they were, and when they got to be part of his team, they got all the benefits of that. They got the engineering. They got the new bikes. They got all these ridiculous sponsorships and all this stuff because Lance asked them to be on his team. They got to be part of that. And Paul says that same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is now at work in you. And that you get part of that exact same thing that raised Jesus from the dead and that was at work in Him. That is now yours if you are in Christ, if He is your Savior. If you need Him to be your Savior, He is your Savior. And all of that Holy Spirit is at work in you. It's more than just a get out, of pass, get out free from hell thing. It's promised for a different life now. For those of us who follow Christ in here, this should be good news. It means that when you feel like God is doing nothing, when you feel like God is just sitting on the sidelines waiting for you to suffer enough so He can just kind of come in and swoop you up, like He is inactive right now, God, where are you? Why aren't you doing something? Why is this so hard? Friends, hear this. Jesus has been raised by the dead by the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God is now in you. It is now in you. If you are trusting in Him, then that same life is at work in you. And even though you may not experience it and feel it like you always want to, the Spirit of God is at work in you and He is working to turn back the effects of the fall because that is what He did with Jesus. He came back to unroll what had happened through sin, which was death. He rolled that back when Jesus was raised from the dead. And He's coming into your heart and He's rolling back the effects of the fall in your life. And this means this, that you can change. But here's the better news, is it's not just up to you to do it. Christianity does not say, hey, come and be saved, and now get to work changing. It says, no, come and be saved, and the best thing that's ever happened to you is that we're going to put the Holy Spirit in you. That God the Father is going to grant you that same Spirit, and He's going to be working change in you. Friends, sanctification is now possible because it is not up to you. If it were up to us to make life good and to be good Christians, that would be awful. I wouldn't do this job. I couldn't stand up here and tell you, now go get to work. Go and read your Bible. Go do all these things, which are good things. But if you're doing those things to try to change yourself, you will fail. And you will forever feel like God is displeased with you or that He doesn't love you. But He has already shown us that He loves us because He's given us His Spirit and that is at work in us. This is what resurrection faith says. And it too is part of your redemption. The implications of how Jesus' resurrection ensure our redemption don't end in the present world. Because thirdly, we're going to consider that the future, uh, the resurrection has a future hope. A future hope of the resurrection. Let's quickly reread verses 20 through 23. And it says this, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, talking about Adam, a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so as in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. Then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Paul says that Jesus was the first of many who would be resurrected. That sounds really weird to most of us. Because we think that heaven is just this place where we're all going to be kind of floating around in the clouds. Because that's where God is, and that's where Jesus is. And that's all there is for us. But Paul's saying, no, there's other people who are going to be resurrected too. Paul says that Christians will have resurrected new bodies. That we weren't made to float around in heaven forever. We are actually made to have new bodies here on earth. 
How is Paul so sure of this? Well, he says, as sure he is, as he is so sure that mankind fell into sin through Adam, right? All men fell into sin. He says, all men will be raised up. Okay, I know you're thinking, all oh, men, does that mean everybody's saved? No. It says, verse, verse 23 says, those who belong to Christ. It clarifies that right there for you. That all those who belong to Christ shall be made alive. That Adam, who God offered eternal life to, if he would obey, but he blew it. But Jesus comes and God says, you are the way, you are the person who I will bring the eternal life that I promised to Adam. You're the person who I'm going to bring that through. We die, yes. But that's not all for us. If this life is not all that there is for the, uh, for the Christian. Um, a friend named, uh, not a friend, not a friend at all. Uh, in fact, but a, a scholar, a pastor, a guy named N.T. Wright, uh, who says a lot of good things, some things that aren't so great. But he says this. That heaven is not your home. I'm sorry, all you C.S. Lewis fans out there. Um, he has some great stuff. He gets, I don't know. You know, we weren't made for this present world. That's true. We were made for a better world than this. But heaven is not our home. We aren't just holding out to be floating angels someday. There is life after life after death. And that life is here on this earth because we will have new bodies. When Jesus comes back, Paul says, He's going to raise your natural body to reunite with your soul. That when you die, your soul will be with God and Jesus in heaven and the Holy Spirit and all other people who have died. But when Jesus comes back, He's coming to bring heaven to earth. We're going to talk about this in the next two weeks. But He's saying when that happens that your body will be resurrected, will be raised up just like His was, and will be rejoined with your soul. It will be rejoined. You will have a physical body. But it will be better. Because guess what? The effects of sin and how that works out in our bodies will not be there. And for many of us in here, some of us who struggle with body image issues, that will not be there. The resurrected body, we won't have that because our sin won't be feeding that. Our insecurity won't be feeding that. And it also means that those of us uh, who worry about what others think of us, and we think that others are constantly, or maybe they are constantly being critical of us, whether our parents or others, whatever, that friends, in heaven, as heaven comes down, that will not be there because sin will not be there. And though you likely all are wishing, I hope I don't have this body, It'll be something like this body, but it'll be so much better. Jesus had his body. It had, still had the scars, but it was better. He was walking through walls and stuff. And I don't get that, but it was amazing. And so there's something better about the glorified, resurrected body. I'm taking Scripture's word on it. I don't, my mind kind of shuts down at that point. But look, we're close with this. The resurrection of Jesus may, means that sin does not win in the end. That sin is not the final word. It doesn't finally win. What you are now is not what you will one day be. Resurrection life is what God intended for man in the beginning. He intended this full life for us. He intended the life that Jesus now has in heaven. That great, perfect communion with God and with each other. We don't have that because of the fall, but we will have it in Christ and in heaven. And remember that God in heaven is a good king. And with Him and in His kingdom is all blessing. And is all joy and happiness and acceptance and approval. And one day, the hope for the Christian is that our resurrected bodies will be there in that kingdom as it comes down to the earth. 
Some of you have begun to experience this now. You've begun to experience this love and acceptance as part of God's bride, the church, as you join yourself to a church. Even taking membership at a local church is the picture of this. And you taste some of that sweet communion with other believers. But it's not perfect. But it's now, it, it's an inbreaking now of what will one day be forever. And you've begun to experience freedom and change, and joy has gripped you. Praise the Lord for His work in you. And don't let His grace be in vain, right? Share it with others. Talk to others. Let it change you. And this is only a preview of what will be for you. But for those of y'all tonight who, who don't know Jesus, who have not taken this, uh, this picture of the Gospel and put it on your own life, and said, yeah, that resurrection did happen. That I am a big sinner. I need a big Savior. Those of you who don't know the lasting and abiding joy and acceptance and a love and approval by God, now's the time. You have to consider this. You have to consider the fact of the resurrection and what that changes about faith and how it brings joy and hope, but also what it means for your future. Because if you're not in Christ, death is the final word for you. You better live it up now because it's all there is. Eat, drink, be merry. Go try to be as good as you can, but this is going to be it. But not for the Christian. Because there is a man, historical man who lived, and his name was Jesus. And he lived and he died and he was resurrected and he claimed to forgive sins. And either he was crazy or he wasn't. And he was raised to show that he was God. And to show that you don't have to be left in your sin. He holds out an offer for you to come in. He still does. He holds out, says, come in to the kingdom. There is new life at work in here. And I wonder if that new life would be at work in you tonight. Would it? Would it? Let's pray. God, we pray and ask for you to send Holy Spirit to come and change our hearts. And to reveal to us the goodness of what you have done for us on our behalf through Christ. It is by grace. Lord, we couldn't do enough to make it happen. And so we thank you. We thank you that it is by grace. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.